Father, thank you for the great mercy and grace in Christ Jesus and the fact that we can praise him, that we can sing the hallelujahs from our heart. While it may be found in many liturgies, Lord, we burst out in song. Sometimes we cannot refrain our hearts. Like the rocks crying out to give you praise, we must acknowledge that you are the sovereign God of the universe. I thank you so much for the people of God called South Church. I thank you for the fact that we can gather for the freedoms we enjoy. I thank you, Lord, for the fact that as we gather, you are present with us. Make that evident today, we pray. Show us yourself. O blessed Spirit of God, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. And may Christ be seen today. Exalt your word as you have promised, even above your name or along with your name, so that every heart will express trust and faith in you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our incredible Savior, amen. Amen. Well, one Sunday morning, a preacher started out just before his sermon to make a confession to the congregation. He said, I've had a terrible week and have not been able to prepare, so today I'm just gonna have to depend upon the Holy Spirit. But I assure you, this will never happen again. <laughs> now, it sounded like uh, something of a Freudian slip. Uh, I'm sure he was promising that he would not come unprepared, but what it sounded like is that he would never again, depend upon the Holy Spirit. And sometimes in our unguarded moments, we say things that are more accurate, accurate than we want to believe. When you read the scriptures, it's abundantly clear that we are to depend upon the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter five. Don't be unwise, know what the will of God is, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or in Galatians chapter five, we're told to walk in the spirit so that we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So even a cursory reading from Paul's epistles makes us aware of the fact that the normal Christian life is a spirit-filled life. But I'm afraid in our unguarded moments, we may confess as well that we don't depend upon the Holy Spirit like we should. And so when we understand that the fullness of the Spirit is normal, not abnormal, it's not reserved for a few spiritually elite, it's not something that only the spiritual aristocracy uh, somehow gain to or, or experience. It's God's desire for every one of his blood-bought children that is, someone who has confessed their sins and they've been cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, every child of God should be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now that, albeit a true truth that we read about in scripture, is somewhat fuzzy to understand. So what does it mean? What does it look like if someone is controlled by the Holy Spirit? What would it look like if I were controlled by the Holy Spirit? 
And you might answer, well, if you were controlled by the Holy Spirit, then the fruit of the Spirit would be evident in your life. And I think that's a good answer, but I want to go even a little deeper than that. Is it possible for us to see someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, there are several in Scripture we could choose from. But this morning, I want us to look at someone who demonstrates what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit in their life. His story emerges from the the fascinating, thrilling account of church history that we read about in the book of Acts. I think it's helpful to think of Luke's writing and his gospel as volume one of the history of the church, which focuses on Jesus, and then volume two is the book of Acts because he's the author of them both. And together they form a wonderful reading of the early church. In fact, if you just count verses, Dr. Luke has written more things than the New Testament than even the Apostle Paul. And as he's telling us about what's happening in church history, he gives us a picture of a life. He gives us the opportunity to view a life filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm beginning in the book of Acts, a portion that was read a moment ago, Acts chapter six and verse one. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. John Stott gives us this interesting insight into this portion of scripture. He says that the devil was trying to ruin the early church and did so with persecution in chapter four when the Jewish authorities clamped down on the disciples, but that didn't work. So then the devil tried to corrupt the early church in chapter five with Ananias and Sapphira, the people who lied to the Holy Spirit. But that didn't work. So now we come to chapter six, and the devil is trying to create contention within the church so that the disciples who are called to preach the word will become distracted. So if he cannot win, if the devil cannot win with persecution, and he cannot win with corruption, then he's going to try to distract you, and perhaps that's his most effective method with the church of the 21st century. It's an interesting story. There are true warring factions here. The Hellenistic Jews, they were uh, women who spoke, uh, the, um, the widows here, women who spoke no Hebrew. They were immersed in the Greek language and culture. Most likely, having come to the Holy Land and to the city of Jerusalem, uh, much like the modern Zionist movement that's been going on since the 1940s of the Jews wanting to return to their homeland. And so they came with a heart's desire to worship the Lord. They outlived their husbands, and so there was an abundance of widows. But there was also another group of widows called the Hebraic widows. These were widows who grew up in the land. They loved everything Hebrew and despised everything that was not. They spoke only Hebrew. And they resented these other widows that came in with a Greek culture. And so you have warring widows 
in the midst of the early church. And that is no simple problem. The scriptures tell us Pentecost came. Many of these widows were converted and now they have to live together in the church and love one another. But old prejudices die hard. Oh, I'm seeing that so much in the evangelical church of our day. Old prejudices die hard. When the scripture ought to rule, we give in to what we know or what we like. And so this problem came to the notice of the apostles. There was some complaining going on. That's what it says in the early verse. It wasn't just the widows complaining, but it was their families complaining. We're being overlooked. One scholar said that uh, the Hebraics got two loaves of bread and the Hellenistics got one loaf of bread. What the church was doing that was good is that they were caring for widows. And that tradition was seen evidently in all the synagogues of the day. But whether it was intentional or imagined, the Hellenistic widows were feeling they weren't getting their fair share. It's interesting to me when the Bible says in Philippians chapter two, do all things without murmuring or disputing, and they complained in this section of scripture and yet got their way. I think you, we have to go beyond context and understand that there are times when we uh, offer a complaint when it is justified, but often it is not. So apparently there was a real problem here. Might have been poor administration, but it came to the 12. Now listen to what the 12, the apostles have to say. This is verse 2. They gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to serve tables. Now that sounds like a pretty arrogant statement. This is beyond us or beneath us for, for us to simply serve widows in the church. But that's not what they're saying at all. I don't think they believe that social work was inferior to pastoral work. But they had received a call from God and they could not do everything one of the great blessings of South Church is that South Church understands that some have been called of God to preach the word but not mow the lawn and it's not that mowing the lawn is beneath us it's just that we don't have time to do everything you can't expect the pastors to do everything. I like mowing the lawn with a zero turn radius mower. <laughs> if I have to push it, I don't want to do it. This was a challenge. Are the apostles going to be distracted? Will they try to do everything? And in some churches, the pastor wants to do everything and it harms the church because there are other gifted people who need to use their gifts. So we read in verse five of this proposal to the problem. The proposal, actually, excuse me, the proposal was in verse three. Brothers and sisters, brethren, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. So here's the criteria. They must be spirit-filled individuals and they must be 
wise men, they must have some practicality to them as well. Because this is a job of administration. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and then that classic verse, we will give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. That's their calling. If you distract the apostles from their calling, we're not gonna get the New Testament. And so this is the church, the early church with some growing pains, learning how to address problems. Problems are really great in the church because they give us an opportunity to grow and develop in the Christian life. And I rarely look at them at that, way, that way. But they are. Problems are also an opportunity for leaders to be evident, to, to be made known as they use their gifts. And that's what happened here. Notice they said, brother and sisters, choose seven. This was the work of the congregation. Apparently the apostles aren't doing everything. They're not making every decision. And verse five says, this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Stephen is the first one mentioned. I don't know if that means anything. And he's described as being filled with the Holy Spirit, which was the requirement. But what we're going to see is that Stephen becomes the focus of the next couple chapters, especially in chapter uh, 7. The second person mentioned is Philip. And that's the one we want to focus on today. Because he's going to be the central figure of Acts chapter eight after uh, Stephen has been given his time. You've got Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. By the way, every name mentioned is a Greek name. There were a majority of Hebrew widows but they chose seven Greek men to take care of the problem because it was the Hellenistic Greek uh, widows that felt that they were being overlooked. And the whole congregation agreed. We've got the Spirit of God working here. Whenever you get a congregation to agree and even overlook what might be your bias, well, that's the Spirit of God building unity. So they chose Philip, and that's the guy we want to look at. There are three Philips in the New Testament. Uh, the first one is Philip the disciple, and you'll read about him quite a bit in the Gospel of John. So he's called early on, and he becomes a, uh, a real leader in the midst of, uh, of the early disciples. But that's not this Philip. The second Philip mentioned in the New Testament is the brother of Herod. And he's only mentioned a few times because Herod married his wife, Herodias, and John the Baptist didn't like that. But the Philip that we're talking about here is mentioned in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at most of those occasions as we try to see what it looks like for a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. We know he's got a good reputation. You're choosing people known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, impeccable character, both practically and spiritually minded, and the work of God needs both. 
And so the first thing I notice about this guy who was chosen for this job is that he is eager to serve. He is eager to serve. There's a humility about this job. It seems to be, we're going to find out that Philip had some amazing gifts given to him by the Spirit of God, but he wasn't, um, he wasn't clamoring for a high-profile position. He was willing to take this job. He was not one of the 12. He's one of the seven, and he's humble. That is the work of the Spirit of God, making people eager to serve. And where you have a chance to serve and you don't serve, you wonder, is the Spirit of God in such a heart as that? Now, I don't mean to say because you don't take every opportunity to serve that you're not filled with the Spirit, but I do mean to say when you are filled with the Spirit, you're eager and willing to serve somewhere because God has given you a gift. And by the way, where does that gift come from? It comes from God, the Holy Spirit. And when you're full of him, there isn't room for a whole lot else. When you're full of God, he takes control. When you're full of God, the dominant thought is, how can I please him? And these men were full of the Holy Spirit. If you're feeling a little conviction now, that's okay, I am too. Something else about this man is he was not only humble, but he was available. And I see that everywhere throughout Philip's life. He's available to do what God wants him to do. And so he jumped in to deal with this task that wasn't the easiest thing, but somehow they managed it well. I hear people say, I don't like the institutional church. And I think by that, they mean a church that is only institutional and has no heart to it. And uh, the hierarchy controls it. And uh, the church itself just has a bunch of rules and traditions. And nothing seems to connect with the scripture or the heart of God. But every church needs to be organized. And there's nothing wrong with organization. And here's the beginning of it. Some people think that this is the beginning of the deacons. And it may be because the Greek word is used in the very first verse in the idea of service. And that's exactly what a deacon was to do. Still, the spiritual leadership was in the hands of the apostles. But now there's another group, spiritually led people, who are dealing with some practical matters in the church. Now, what's the result of all of this? Well, look at verse seven. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The danger of the church stopping because the devil distracted the church with lesser issues has been avoided And through the spirit of God and wisdom, the church goes forward. Pray for those who are in spiritual leadership. By the way, Philip is a layman. He's he's not one of the professionals, as far as we can tell. He's not an apostle. Pray for those who are in leadership, both those who are called to serve as their profession 
and those who with other professions are called to serve as laymen. We need to uphold them in prayer. So eager to serve. Now jump over chapter eight, uh, the wonderful testimony, or chapter seven, excuse me, jump over seven to eight. And it starts out in verse one. On that day, a great persecution broke out. So you see Stephen is martyred at the end of chapter seven. And the Jews realize that this is popular and they can get away with it. And so they now began to persecute the whole church in Jerusalem. And by the way, the whole church was in Jerusalem. There was really no other church anywhere else except maybe in a few pockets. But Jerusalem held uh, the people of God. That's where they gathered and that's where they worshiped. And now the scripture says that persecution caused the church to disperse. When persecution came against the church in Jerusalem, everyone except the apostles were scattered. It's fascinating to me how people can be so critical. In this text, people are critical of the Christians who fled persecution. (laughs) And then some are critical of the apostles who stayed and didn't go out and share the message of God. I think Each group is doing exactly what the Lord wanted them to do. You have to go back to Acts chapter one and verse eight where the Lord said that he's gonna send power upon the church and the church is going to minister in its Judea and then in its Samaria and then unto the uttermost part of the earth. And the church was was growing by thousands in the city of Jerusalem and now it was time to move it out. And this is the method God chose. The devil wants to smother and kill the church with persecution. But for God, it's like fanning the flame. The spirit of God just makes the church grow. And that's what's happening here. So, the church is scattered. And I want you to notice something very fascinating in verse four. After the godly people had mourned for Stephen and his death, Saul kept going on to destroy the church. But verse four says, those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now here we have two distinctly Christian words for evangelism. The first one in verse four is this idea of uh, of actually the English word comes from this. Euangelizomai has in it the word evangelism. If you take the letters and put it into English, it's pretty close. And this is more like sharing the word of God with other people. In fact, someone described it as gossiping the gospel. We're so good at gossiping. I just wish we could gossip the gospel. Hey, have you heard something? This is amazing. It's a secret, don't tell anyone else. I just want you to know, Jesus died for you. So they were going, wherever they went, they were sharing the word of God. But in verse five, you have a word translated proclaim. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed. Now you have the word keruso, which speaks of a town crier 
uh, loudly announcing news. Back in that day, when you didn't have a newspaper, you would come to the marketplace or the town square, and there an authority would proclaim the news from the king. And that's exactly what he's doing. Now, later on in verse 12, Philip is going to euangelizomai, the gospel. He's going to share it, but here he is proclaiming. And the next thing I notice about a spirit-filled individual, and this is true of, of those who were scattered, that they're willing to share. Eager to serve, willing to share. And by this I mean to share the good news about Jesus Christ. We could go to many passages of scripture and add other details of a spirit-filled individual, but from this one life, it screams out that spirit-filled people are workers and they want to witness. First of all, he's sharing publicly in a city. And I think there's one characteristic here, his boldness. It wasn't easy to be the first missionary on the ground in Samaria. You have to remember the background of Samaria. Uh, the 10 northern tribes of which Samaria was a part were taken away in the Assyrian captivity. And during that period of time, they were intermarrying the Jews with the Assyrians. And then intentionally, the Assyrians repopulated the area of Samaria with these mixed marriages. So the Samaritans are Jews and Gentiles together. And so again, the pure Jew thinking that the Hebrew is, is going to think this is horrible. This is, this is something that we cannot endure. And so it began to grow from there, things got worse. When the Jews were rebuilding their temple, they did not allow the Samaritans to help, so the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they decided that they were going to only embrace the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and reject the rest. And so the Jews, did not associate, it says in John 4, with the Samaritans. They didn't want to walk through their land, they didn't want to talk with their people, and God leads Philip to be the first man to take the gospel to them. That took some boldness. And the scripture says that he proclaimed in the city the Messiah. Always remember that. He is concerned about the gospel. He's available to be used and concerned about the gospel. So verse 12, when Philip preached, they believed as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and of the name of Jesus Christ. And people were baptized, both men and women. That's the result. The result of good organization in the early church was that the gospel was able to flow unhindered and it affected many hearts. And now the result is of a person going with boldness and availability and concern for the message of Christ is that people are coming to Christ. 
Now it's true, uh, we're skipping over some things simply for time. Uh, Philip, it's interesting that both Stephen and Philip, although they were not apostles, were able to use miracles. While not the norm for everyone, God gave them the ability to do that. And there was also the battle with uh, the sorcerer of Samaria named Simon Magus, to whom all the people thought he was sent from God because of his amazing powers, which was all an illusion. But now the power of God upon Philip and his preaching brought people to faith in Christ. So that's a pretty amazing story, but that's not where it stops with Philip in chapter eight, because at the end of the chapter, he's sharing the gospel again, not publicly, but privately. He was led of God to go into Samaria to preach the message of Christ, and now he's led of God to go to the backside of the desert, a desert road, going down to Gaza to preach the message of Christ. Not to a city, but to a solitary figure. He's available. He's flexible, he's concerned about the gospel, and he goes. We often read the story of Acts 8 when we have baptisms because it is so amazing to see how the people who believed in the city in Samaria believed and were baptized, and then this individual we're going to talk about on his way home um, on a desert road believes and is baptized. It's interesting when you think about God using someone like Philip. Why does God use any of us? I think because we're humble to submit and we're available to be used and we're concerned for the kingdom and when we're filled with the spirit, God has all of us. That was a great statement that came out of a, uh, someone asking about William Booth. William Booth was a great preacher of the Word of God, foundation, founder of the uh, um, Salvation Army. And sometime a person asked, how come God uses William Booth? He's not talented. He doesn't speak well. Uh, he has no money. He has no power. How come God uses William Booth? And the answer was because God has all of him. And that's why God uses someone like Philip. We need the spirit of God, but we have to be broken enough about our own sin and weakness to surrender totally to the sovereign God. And so now, Philip goes on a desert road to the backside of the desert. By the way, this section of scripture has a, an unusual similarity to another individual who was taken to a group of travelers and opened up the word of God to them and even shared in a, we would call an ordinance, not baptism, but the Lord's Supper and had the people understand the gospel in a new and powerful way. I'm referring to what happened to Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, kind of similar. God leads Philip to go to this road. By the way, you're in a revival in a city and now God takes you to go to the backside of the desert or desert road where no one is around. 
That may not mean anything to you, but if you're a preacher, that's the last thing you want to do. You don't want to leave revival. But he did. And he sees this individual, most likely a black man. He's an Ethiopian, and it's not modern-day Ethiopia. But this man uh, serves under Kandake, probably the Kandake dynasty. Sometimes we think of this being the name of the queen, Candace, it reads in our scripture, but it's more a dynasty, and he's serving under the queen mother of that dynasty as a high-level official. But he came to Jerusalem to worship. That's 200 miles. Probably a Jew. And, And he's coming to worship and now returning home with a chariot and his entourage. Must have been an impressive sight. Don't know how many people were there. But he's sitting in his chariot reading the scripture because he didn't get what he was really looking for. Or he was still seeking. There were still questions. And he's reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip comes alongside the chariot and hears him read and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone tells me? And so Philip gets up into the chariot, the Bible tells us, and preaches Christ to him. This is chapter 8, verse 35. Philip began with that very passage of scripture, Isaiah 53, as we know it. And he told him the good news about Jesus. He evangelized him and shared with him the good news about Christ. He's concerned for the gospel. Wherever he goes, he's concerned that the gospel is not hindered in the early church, so he's willing to be a worker. And then God leads him to be a witness and even to preach in a city and then be a witness one-on-one to someone he doesn't know. And he does it because he's filled with the Spirit And people filled with the Spirit want to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And this man gets saved, sees some water, says, what hinders me from being baptized? Most likely he saw a bunch of people baptized in Jerusalem. And goes home to his kingdom, and I'm only guessing, proclaim Christ in a powerful way by his life. Well, 20 years later, we don't hear much about Philip for a while. He was in Gaza, and apparently he preached his way home to Caesarea on the Sea, which is north of Gaza, right on the shore of the Mediterranean. Because 20 years later, we have the Apostle Paul making his way back to Jerusalem, and he comes to the city of Samaria, and we read in verse 8, so this is chapter 21 of Acts, verse 8, leaving the next day, we reach Caesarea, and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. So now you have an official title for what happened back in Acts chapter 6. And we have a, a name for Philip. He's not Philip the disciple, he's not Philip the brother of Herod, he's Philip the evangelist. I don't think that was an official position necessarily held, it's just what he did everywhere he went. And now he's showing hospitality. He's serving once again, and he's helping the apostle Paul who is proclaiming the gospel. I just put verse nine in there just to... uh, Uh, 
spark a little debate, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And we'll deal with that some other time. <laughs> there were prophets, prophetess in the Old Testament, Huldah and others. Uh, and here we have prophets in the New Testament. Well, Joel did say in Acts chapter two, your sons and daughters will prophesy in the last day, and this is part of the last day. You've also got some instruction in Paul's epistles about church matters that have to be taken into. You, you take all of scripture, all of the analogia scriptura, bring it together, and then try to make a proper decision. But here's this guy bearing fruit in his old age, still concerned for the gospel, willing to go anywhere, willing to speak to anyone, willing to do anything so that people might hear about Jesus Christ. Available to serve and available to share. Lord, what do you want me to do? These are marks of spirit-filled people. So, are you filled with the spirit? People need to hear about Christ. People need the Lord. They need Christ. It was back in 1857 when Hudson Taylor began to minister in Ningpo, China. And as he was beginning to get settled, there was a lot of persecution, but he led a person to Christ. Mr. Nai, or Nai, came to Christ. The man was overjoyed, wanted to share his faith. And then he said to J. Hudson Taylor, how long have your people back in England had this message about Christ, the gospel? Oh, for many centuries, Taylor said. To which this man from China replied, my father died seeking the truth. Why didn't someone come sooner? And Taylor had no answer to that penetrating question. Aren't you glad someone shared Christ with you? Let's be filled with the spirit and share him with others. Heavenly Father, as we look at the story of this man chosen of you to serve and chosen of you to share and filled with your spirit before and even at the very end still concerned about the gospel going forward, I pray that some of those marks might be found in us. The message is always about Christ there's nothing else that we need to share, nothing worthy of uh, putting our lives in risk. And that when we share the good news about Christ, you've promised, O oh Lord, that Christ would be with us. You've promised, Heavenly Father, that your son would never leave us nor forsake us. Those are his own promises to us. I am with you always, even to the end of the age with God the Father over us and the Lord Jesus with us and the Holy Spirit in us, may we go boldly forth to share the truth with others. In Jesus' name, amen.